So we're going to study the whole counsel of God, and we want to do that. So let's open with a word of prayer, and let's dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. As we go to your word right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. We thank you for all the people that are watching on live stream and are watching on Vimeo and YouTube, Lord, and Facebook. And so, Lord, we pray you'd be with them as well tonight. So, Lord, be glorified. Speak to us. We ask that the ministry of your Holy Spirit will be alive and active. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. All right, so if you take a text out of context, all you left is a con. So let's just take a moment to remember that Chronicles is being written, and it's being written in a time to remind the people who had gone into Babylon in bondage for 70 years, and now God, by his grace, is bringing them back to Jerusalem, bringing them back to Israel. So most of them... Uh, many of them, probably most of them, had never been to Israel before. So they didn't even understand how the temple operated. They'd been under captivity under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and all the other false uh, kings that came after him. And so now they're coming back, and what, what is God doing? He gives them this, these letters, First and Second Chronicles, to remind them of all the things God has done in Israel and all the things God, God wants to continue to do in and through Israel. So First Chronicles, as we've seen as we're getting to the end of it, has focused mainly on King David. We're going to see uh, the next time I teach in this text, we're going to see the King David going to heaven. When we get to Second Chronicles, it focuses largely on the life of Solomon. Now, as we read through this, I want to say this, chapters like tonight are chapters that most people skip over, but it, because it's got genealogies and things like that in it. But if God put it in the Bible, we need to open it, read it, and obey it. Amen? It's in there for a reason. And so the last two weeks, what we've been looking at is that our God is a God of order. And as he's telling them, as they go back into Israel, he's telling them, look, for us, just like the body of Christ, for us to function properly, we all need to be using the gifts God's given us. You have gifts I don't have. I may have gifts you don't have. And that's how the body of Christ functions. The Bible says if we're all eyes, where's the hearing? We're, if we're all hearing, where's the tasting, right? So we all need to be using the gifts God's given us. And so in the first two weeks, first he talked about the priests and the Levites, those who served in the temple, and those who were uh, making the sacrifices and all the things that were pointing to Jesus who would come uh, many years later. And then he talks about the Levites, those who were called uniquely by God in a practical way. And then we saw last week, we looked at worship. You know that worship is one of the few things we do on earth we're going to do in heaven. And so worship should be something that out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. And he was talking to the musicians that were going to be used in the worship of the Lord and that they should do everything with excellence and that the focus should always be on the Lord and not on man. So now, if you have your outline, grab it. If you didn't get one, we'll get you one. A little outline looks like it says the men and women that God uses. We're going to try to do two chapters tonight. We'll see if we're successful. The men and women that God uses. And we're going to see as again, our God is a God of order and he's preparing them. This is David coming to the very end of his life. And before he leaves, he doesn't talk about how to conquer the world around him. He doesn't talk about how, what legacy is he going to leave behind. What he talks about is making sure that when he's gone, the people continue to worship the Lord. And as believers, that should be our heart. 
If the Lord should tarry and I go to heaven, my prayer is that my kids and my grandkids will love the Lord as much or more than I do. Amen? We want to be a Christ-like example to them. And so David knows that Solomon is going to take his place. We know that God told David he couldn't rebuild the temple, so he's doing everything he can to prepare for it to be rebuilt by his son once he departs. So tonight, we're going to see David, what David is doing in these two chapters. And let me give you the quick points. I didn't even number them. I just noticed that. So number one, God chooses to use people. You know, couldn't God just open the sky up and tell everybody the gospel? What's the answer? He absolutely could. And you know what? Instead, he chooses to use you and me. And you know what that does? That means that we should recognize that's, that's both a, a responsibility and a blessing. So we get to, God chooses to use people like you and me. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. Number two there, those that he has called and gifted. Who does he use? Those that he has called and gifted. So if you're born again, you're a new creation in Christ. Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He will never leave you nor forsake you. As DC Talk said years ago, you're <laughs> heaven bound, amen. And he has gifted you and God is, wants us to be used for his kingdom and his glory. So he calls you and he gives you gifts. Imagine, I can't imagine if I did this, I'd be in trouble with my wife. So what imagine if my wife picked out the best gift she could possibly give me, spent months or years, and then put it, you know, under the Christmas tree, and I just left it there for 10 years and never opened it. I'd be divorced, but amen. But the point I'm making is God gives us gifts, and sadly, a lot of Christians never use them. Like the parable of the talents, it gets dug into the ground and never used. Number three, the men and women God uses, all tasks, whether spiritual or practical, have value in the eyes of God. So everything, every gift that makes church happen, every gift that is practical in the way that they're used or spiritual are, are viewed by the Lord as important. My wife, uh, most of you know my wife, and my wife will tell you that she and I are very different, shocker. And, uh, I, you know, I have friends that people haven't met yet, and my wife's very friendly once she gets to know you, but my wife does not feel called to teach, and that's not her gift. And when the church I pastored in Santa Cruz got very large, people would pressure her, why aren't you teaching? And, and uh, you know, and I'd be saying, why aren't you playing in the major leagues? Because you're not gifted to do that, and that's not her calling. Can I get an amen to that? But what, but what she would say is, she'd say, well, babe, I just feel like sometimes I'm, I'm not ministering to people in a way that's, effect- and I just feel bad. I feel like I'm the pastor's wife. I should be, but you know what my wife would do? When somebody had a baby, she'd go to their house and clean their house top to bottom and make them meals and go shopping for them. And I said, babe, do you think that that woman would rather have you do that in the midst of what's going on? So look, your gift, whatever your gift is, it may seem insignificant to you or to the world. It's not insignificant to God, Amen. Somebody who comes and sets up chairs for Jesus, again, we don't get to sit down if somebody doesn't do it. The, the fact that we're on, you know, all this stuff that takes place and then it goes out on the radio and it's heard by thousands, all because people are using their gifts and may we be faithful to use them, whether they're, they look spir- like very spiritual in nature, leading worship, teaching a Bible study, whatever it may be, or something practical. Number four there, God is the one who calls us, not men. So when there's a calling upon your life. God is the one who will move on your heart. I was at a pastor's conference not too long ago, and one of the questions was, how do we know? We had a pastor's, uh, pastor's up front, and they just did a Q&A, and the guy said, how do we know when we're called? How do I know when I'm called? Anybody else ever had that question before? Okay, we've, we've all had it. And I always tell people, 
If you're truly called, you can't do anything else. I'd say a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. When you see a need that maybe nobody else sees, that's God stirring you up to use your gift for the Lord. So God is the one who calls us. God is the one who stirs us up. Don't wait for somebody to come tap you on the shoulder necessarily. But when the Lord taps you on the shoulder, may you respond. With calling comes accountability. Anything we do for the Lord, we want to do with excellence. Amen? Not so we can earn his favor. He already loves us. But if, we're, if you were having Jesus over for dinner, would you take the day off to make the meal? Can I, amen? Right? If you're doing it for the Lord, wouldn't you do it with excellence? Well, everything we do for the Lord, we should do to the best of our ability. Number five, I guess, one, two, three, four, five, six. We need godly men and women in positions of authority. Amen? Our world is in turmoil right now. But you know what? It agrees with what the Bible already told us. It says in the last days, men will call good evil and evil good. I never thought, I'm getting a little old, I never thought I'd see a time when people didn't know what men and women are. I never thought I'd see a time when just the absolute absurdity of some of the things that are going on in the world around us, but you know what it is? People are spiritually blind and we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God, and all of it is in an attack on Genesis. Evolution is an attack on creation. A gay marriage is an attack on true marriage. Amen? All the, you know, abortion is an attack on the fact that God gives life. And all those things that the world sees as okay and normal, it's, all of it is an attack on what the Word of God says. And that's why we need to know what the Word of God says. And we need godly men and women in positions of authority. I, I praise God that the, the, pa, the pa, campus pastor here is Joshua Camper. The, the, uh, one of the high school teachers here, high school and middle school teachers for Spanish and Bible is Chris Ramirez, who is one of, our, you know, one of our leaders here. And I praise God for people in positions of authority who love the Lord and are teaching and ministering to our kids. Amen? And you'll see there in chapter 27, verse 1 through 15, it says, May we be mighty men and women of God, faithful men and women of action, examples to others. So God didn't save us so we could sit on the sideline, and God wants to use us to be examples to other people that they can follow. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Then when I put man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. See, we need to have, be more than men and women of reputation. We need to be men and women of character. Reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one's watching. May we be men and women of character. And then last two, faithfulness, not numbers is what matters. We're going to see that uh, some of them are called in a big way and some are called in a small way. And it's not about the number of people or how many people we're impacting, but us just being faithful to do what God's called us to do. I believe you should be just as prepared to teach three five-year-olds in a Sunday school class as you are to teach 10,000 people in a stadium. Amen? Because it's significant for those three five-year-olds. And then finally, give ministry away. Who are you discipling and who's discipling you? If you've been coming to church any length of time, I, I, I've, I think in the 10, nine years or whatever, we've had maybe one or two people from outside. We always use the people that are here. Why? We want people to develop their gifts and to grow in them, right? We want, we want to disciple people and see them growing in their relationship with the Lord. So again, if you're new, I always go over the outline first. I tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, then I'll tell you what I told you. Amen. And so... The men and women, the men and women that God uses, beginning there, God chooses to use people. Look at 1 Chronicles 26, verses 1 through 5. And it says there, concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers, 
of the Korathites, Meshlemiah, the son of Korah, and the sons of Asaph, the sons of Meshlemiah, and were Zechariah, the firstborn, Jedidiah, the second, Zadadiah, the third, Japhneel, the fourth, Elam, the fifth, Jehonan, the sixth. Uh, and you know, you gotta love, I would love it like a Dave in here somewhere. <laughs> Joe, you know, right? Ethanai, the seventh. Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom. Now, what do we remember about Obed-Edom? Who remembers? Something significant about him. Bible quiz, come on. I just taught it 15 chapters ago. See, that, and, that, and people say, why are you repetitive? This is why. Obed-Edom was the man that when they got the ark back, that he put the ark in his house and he had it in his home for several months. Because you remember when they brought it back, they tried to do it the wrong way and the guy reached out and touched the ark and dropped dead. You guys remember that? Well, Obed-Edom was the guy that brought the ark and put it into his home for safekeeping until they finally got to bring it to Jerusalem. So he is a man, obviously, that was available to be used by God, and now he's being used by the Lord as one of these gatekeepers. Now, as we're going through this genealogy, he's talking about gatekeepers. So who are they? The gatekeepers were, some would say they're like ushers, and I'd say in a small way, maybe. So they would be, we're going to see that they're posted around the, when the temple's rebuilt, they're posted around the temple, and then some of them are posted around the city. And what do they do? They're making sure that when people come to worship, that the people are coming to worship and not to, you know, uh, declare war against God's people. They also were to make sure they were there to kind of ask questions, put people in the right direction. But really what they were, they were like security guards. They were the ones that were standing for the things of God, who were willing to, so we saw already the pastors in a sense, the priests. We saw the Levites, they're like the deacons, right? The people that serve in practical ways. We saw the musicians or the worship leaders. And now these are the ones that keep God's people safe. Now let me ask you a question. Could God keep his people safe without our help? What's the answer? But he chooses to use people. Amen? And you know what? So again, God can do it without us, but he chooses to use us. But I want you to notice that as we're going through these names, these are all godly men of godly character that he's going to use to be the one that stand up and protect the people as they worship the Lord. See, when there, for others to worship, sometimes we need to sacrifice and do something so others can worship. My wife and I, when I, long before I was a pastor, we used to serve in the nursery. We had little kids, and we would serve in the nursery. And I just, I love babies anyway. But we would serve in the nursery, and the whole, one of the main things is we minister to the little kids, but it also gives the parents a chance to go worship the Lord. Amen? And, and, and they love their children, but sometimes they just need some time where they can just focus on the Lord and spend time. So guys, when we use our gifts, it's for God's glory, but it's also to bless someone else. And when we're used in a practical way, it's allow people to enter into God's worship. So they made sure that people coming in well, had hearts to serve and worship. They led them in the right direction. They answered their questions. And were they coming in to worship or were they coming in to rob the place? The church I, I pastored in Santa Cruz, got, as I said, got pretty large. And, and we had someone come and do an overview on our church from Calvary Coast to Mesa. And one of the things he said was, how do you not have armed guys in the front row? I'm like, do we need that? He goes, you might. And so after that, we had a bunch of police officers and we had guys who would sit in the front row and the back two rows that were ready to do what was necessary to protect the people in the church. And you know what? We do need that. Again, we, that's the world we live in. Amen? 
And we need to have security, but again, God is in control, but we also need to be faithful. And again, these guys are like security guards. He names all their names here. Down in verse 5, Amiel, the 6th, Issachar, the 7th, Pethuel, the 8th, for God blessed him. So God is using these men. Essentially, again, their duty was, again, to make ordinary people aware of the practical limits of what God has called, what the, te- what the temple is for, what the tabernacle is for. I want to make it very clear that anyone and everyone is always welcome to come to church here. Amen. And when I was in Santa Cruz, we were the highest population of homosexuals in the country, and we had a lot of homosexuals who would come visit our church. And while we don't agree with their lifestyle, we still love them because the church is a hospital, not a police station. Amen? And we want to love people. We want to point them to the answer. And there before the grace of God goes, every one of us, we're all sinners saved by grace. Amen? But we have those that would, would stand at the door, welcome people in and at the same time. And so you notice he's got order. David's leaving. His son's going to be the new king, Solomon. He said, here's what the priest should be doing. Here's what the Levites should be doing. Here, we need, here's what needs to happen with the worship music. And now you need to make sure that our people are protected. Did Israel have a reason to be worried about being attacked? What's the answer? They're attacked all the time. By the way, there's nothing new under the sun. Israel's the size of like New Jersey. And it has more focal point on it than any, any place in the world. And why is that? Because it's God's place. It's his promised land. Amen? So Obed-Eden, we saw that he was used by the Lord. We see that these are men that are godly. Then it says down there in verse 8, we'll skip up there, and it says, All there were the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, able men with strength for work, 62 of Obed-Edom. So 62 of his descendants, look at point number two there, uh, those that he has called able men with strength for the work. Notice it says there in verse eight, it says that very thing, able men with strength for the work. See, if God calls you to do something, he will equip you to do it. Amen? I don't want a bodyguard that looks like Pee Wee Herman. Can I get an amen to that? We, when, when God has called you to do whatever God has called you to do, he will gift you to do it. And it will be evident. Amen? People will recognize it. And so he's saying here, when, when we have these people that serve as gatekeepers, and we're going to get into more detail on that, they need to be people that are, are strong and able to work. Men that can do the task that is before them. We don't want to put people in positions. You know, the Bible says to lay hands on no man quickly. And so a lot of times you get so excited. Uh, we see this a lot around here. Somebody famous gets saved and they want to have them teach the next Sunday. And that'll never happen here. Can I get amen to that? But it'll happen. And people are like, oh, so-and-so got saved. And yeah, well, they're a baby Christian. And I'm glad they're here. And maybe they could share their testimony sometime. But the point is, we want people using the gifts and places where they've been called by God and uniquely gifted by God. Amen? And God has called and gifted every single one of you. And I don't want you to miss out on God's highest. So they were men of ability, and they were the ones who watched over the Father's house, the house of Almighty God. And again, it, it, it can be translated in original language, strong men. And God gifts us for where he chooses to use us. Lord, help us to be faithful with the gifts God has given us. Help us not to bury them in the sand like the parable, the, you know, the talents. And God comes back and you just give him back what he gave you. And again, this is not works-based salvation. Your salvation is not based on your works, but good works are fruit of salvation. Amen? 
If we've truly been born again, we're going to live different than the way we did before we were saved. We're new creations in Christ. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and God wants to use us. Now, he's going to talk about some more of the gatekeepers in verse 9 to 12. And some of them, you know, as opposed to a spiritual, you know, doing something in a spiritual way, they're people that are doing things in a practical way. Look what it says in verse 9. And Meshlemiah had sons and brethren, 18 able men. Also, Hosa, the children of Merari, had sons. Shimri, the first, for though he was not the firstborn, his father made him the first. Hilkiah the second, Tebaliah the third, Zechariah the fourth, all the sons and the brethren of Hosa were 13. Now he's talking about the different descendants of Levi, and each of them had different callings on their family. But notice that it speaks of everybody in this. He's got 13 kids in his family, and they're all serving the Lord. Boy, wouldn't we all love that to be true of our family, amen? Got 13 kids, and they're all serving the Lord. And we need to pray for our kids because they're tempted by the things of the world. They got to go from mom and dad's faith to their own faith. But again, he says here something that's unique. Notice he said that though he was not the firstborn, his father made him the first. Well, you know where else we see that in scripture? Where do we see that? Talks about Jesus being the firstborn over creation. And a lot of people, the Jehovah's Witnesses will try to tell you, well, see, he's created. The word firstborn there means preeminent. It doesn't mean that he was created. It means he is greater than all of creation. He is preeminent in creation. And if you'll also remember that King David himself was the young, well, tell Benjamin, but other sons, but um, that's of Israel. But David was the youngest and they waited. Remember when they showed up, Samuel shows up, one of your sons is going to be king. They didn't bring David in. He brought in all his brothers. We're going to see one of Meliab in a minute. And they bring them all in, and they're like, and, and, and even Samuel's like, this is the dude. He's Rico Suave. He's good looking. He's yoked. That's the guy. And the Lord's like, no, it's not him. And they keep going, and finally he goes to, to, to his dad, Jesse, you got any more kids? Yeah, we got the little ruddy teenager one that's out watching the sheep. Well, go get him. And he comes in, and the Lord says, this is him. And there's that verse that we all love and we should know. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. See, everybody was looking at the size of someone's muscles or how charismatic they were, how good looking he was. And what happened? There was this young man who was out worshiping when nobody was paying attention. There was a man who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep and God was preparing him to fight a giant, amen? And the Bible says that again, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And so we get so caught up, selfie, selfie, Selfie. <laughs> right? So ridiculous. Nobody cares. Can I get an amen to that? I just parted my hair the other way. What do you think? I didn't get enough likes. I'm suicidal. It's sad. It's sad. So we need to not worry about what men and women think of us, but what does God think about us? Just remember this. The next time you think you're not worth anything, Remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knows you best. He loves you most. He hung on the cross of Calvary. So the next time you're discouraged and you think you're not of value, just look to the cross and remember that Jesus would have done that if it was only for you. Amen? He's a loving God. And so he says that he was first. 
because God had a calling on his life. Even though he wasn't the firstborn, he was the one with the unique calling by God. And again, that's a picture of what would happen with Jesus. When I said Benjamin earlier, I was thinking about Joseph. So Jesus is not a created being, but the preeminent above all creation. And God has a, has a calling on our life as well. And you know what? God will put us in a place where he wants us to be. We don't listen to what men have to say. We wait upon the Lord. And again, whether spiritual or practical, we all have value in the eyes of the Lord. See, these, these men that were serving, some of them were serving in a practical way. And we're going to see that the, the gates get divided up. And some of them are the main gate. Man, I'm, on, I'm on the eastern gate, man. Messiah's coming here. I, you know, I'm, I'm at this gate. I'm at that gate. And some of them got gates down the road somewhere. Some of them got, there's a gate. It's literally the, the, the dung gate. gate. You want that one? You've got the, you know, you got the porta potty gate. That's the one that you got, right? You know, this one, Messiah's marching through. This one over here, it stinketh, right? But somebody's got to be there. And the point is that when God calls us, wherever he calls us, wherever he chooses to use us, let's do it for God's glory, amen? And to recognize whatever he calls us to do, that in his eyes, again, as we are faithful, it blesses our Savior, Amen. Don't you want to be a blessing to our Savior? Did you even know you could be? It's pretty amazing. Point number four there. God is the one who calls us, not men. Look at verse 13. And they cast lots for each gate, the small as well as the great, according to their father's house. So here's what they did. They brought everybody who was called, and they lined them all up. And then they cast lots. They either reached into a bag and pulled something out, and it had writing on it, or they would you know, kind of cast lots. So however they did it, God was, God's hand was upon it. Now, we don't do that anymore. And you know why we don't? Because we have the complete revelation and we have the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now the Holy Spirit leads us in the word of God. So they didn't have the completed word of God yet. And they didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them like we do. Sometimes God would pour out a spirit like he did on King David. So they would cast lots. And what they did is they just lined them all up. And it didn't matter if someone was older or younger or bigger or stronger or whatever. And whatever, pull, this is your calling. Go do it. So each one reached in. And so who was the one that was making the assignments? Almighty God was. Because he was the one who had his hand upon, that was the way in the old, old covenant, in the Old Testament, that was the way he led them was by casting lots. And so it says there, they're either casting lots and they find out which gate falls to them. So they're saying, okay, we're going to make pastors all over the country. And, you know, and the guy next to you gets the Hawaii. And you get North Dakota. <laughs> right on the border. You look on your, on your phone, negative 75 right now. The other guy's going, it's 83 degrees and the sun is out, right? And what can happen is we can look at someone else's gifting and we can get jealous. It is hilarious to me that there's like 25 Calvary chapels in Hawaii and I don't think there's any in North Dakota right now. I don't think so. So when guys tell me I'm called, I'm going to Hawaii, how come no one's called? How come no one's called to the frozen tundra? What's up with that, Amen. Pray for my buddy, Mickey. He's pastoring a church in Alaska. That brother's called, amen? But the point is that God has a calling for each individual. Sometimes it's not what we expect, or even maybe may not even be what our flesh wants. But when God calls us to do it, it's a get to, not a have to, amen? I told you that I was, when I went and spoke at the conference, somebody asked if I would take over their church in Hawaii. I'm not going anywhere. But I just told them, when they asked me, they're like, yeah, bro, the building you pay for, this is great. And they tell me all the reasons. I'm like, yeah, but God didn't tell me to do that. 
Amen? And there's nothing better than being where you know you're supposed to be, doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. Amen? It's a God thing. It's a get to. It's not a have to. And it's a joy. And so each one of these are pulling these things out stone by stone. You know, and the lot for the east gate fell to, verse 14, Shemaiah, the cast of the lots, his son Zechariah, a wise counselor. His lot came up the north gate to Obed-Edom, the southern gate, to Shufim and Hosiah. The lot was cast to the western gate, which the Shakakai gate on the ascending highway. So they're, they're outside of the city. Watchmen opposite the watchmen. So some of them were, were stationed way outside the city. They weren't even near where everything was taking place. Some of them were right inside the temple and others were out on a dirt road somewhere. But again, God uniquely called them and uniquely gifted them. And wherever God wants you to be, again, it will be a get to and not a have to. I found this to be true. When I was a youth pastor, I was a high school pastor for 15 years on purpose. Okay? 15 years hanging out with teenagers. But I want to tell you something. I love teenagers, and I, was, I, was, I would have done it the rest of my life. But when God's called you to something, I would be driving home from work, and I would see teenagers on a street corner with skateboards. I'd pull over. What's, what's up, guys? And invite them to youth group. Why? Because a burden is the spawning ground of a calling. Amen? And when God's called you to do it, then all of a sudden, God will give you a burden for those people. And he's moving in each of their hearts. And we'll see when we get to Nehemiah that how each gate has a leader over it and how God divinely purposed it. Now there's 22 leaders among the gatekeepers, 4,000 gatekeepers. We saw that in a couple chapters ago. And so what was taking place, there were leaders who were responsible for that gate, but they had people coming in and working in, you know, in, uh, in different shifts. We, talk, we saw that with the worship leaders. We saw that even with the priests, other than the high priest, they would serve in the temple for a month and then they'd be home with their family for 11 months. They'd be back to the temple. And the same thing was taking place here. They were all given opportunities to serve, but they also were called to take care of their families and be at home with them. By the way, that's our first ministry. Amen. Minister to your family. Let's skip down to verse 20 and point number one, two, three, four, five. With calling comes accountability. Look what it says there. Of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasures of the house of God and over the treasures of the dedicated things. Now, what are the treasures? Now, Ahijah was over all the treasury. He was like the secretary of the treasury. And his calling was to make sure that all that was brought and given to the Lord through offerings or the spoils of war were put in a place and they were kept safe. So there was somebody who was called to make sure that things weren't stolen or taken away. Well, in churches today, we have the same thing. We have people that, uh, again, keep us accountable, who count the offerings, who make sure we're good stewards with the finances so that we can minister to other people. It's all God's money. None of it's ours. By the way, just so you know, I never look at who gives what, and I never have in 34 years as a pastor. And the re reason I don't want to know, I, I, don't want, I don't even want to fall into that trap. What you see in the Bible, it says you'll see somebody who gives a lot and you'll treat them differently. I don't, I don't, so if you don't give, you're off the hook with me because I don't know. <laughs> now, the point is, that when we give, we give to the Lord with a cheerful heart. Amen? 
But I do know the amount that's given, so we know, hey, we're going to, you know, we're on radio stations, hey, we're doing this ministry, hey, we're helping this family in need, hey, we're supporting Bayamba, the orphanage in, uh, in Uganda, we support the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in town, you know, there's other ministries that we support, and we're doing all these things based on, again, what is being given. So somebody needs to not only have oversight, but then there needs to be accountability for those people who have oversight, because nobody in ministry would ever take advantage of people for money, right? Watch Christian television sometime. It's tragic, amen? But there needs to be authority. There needs to be accountability. And as believers, we all need to be accountable. Again, so there's two sources of finances that were coming in in the time of uh, when the temple was rebuilt. Money that was given to the house of the Lord from tithes and offerings and gifts, and the money that was accumulated from the spoils of war and was dedicated to God. So one of the lessons we're learning here again is accountability, and God has a place for accountability amongst God's people. The people I'm most concerned about is the people that have no accountability to anyone. And they're always the ones that want to debate. I had a guy reach out to me this week that I knew years ago, and he believes that this is how church should function. And he, he, gave, me ver- he gave me verses. He said, you should just show up, and then whoever feels led to, to, to share something gets up. Whoever it is, you just say, whoever wants to do it, get up and do it. And they get up, and then you have this debate that goes on throughout the service. And you have many people going back and forth. Now, again, if you're sitting at a home group and you all want to talk about scripture, but the reality is that, again, the chapter he uses, 2 Corinthians 14, where it's talking about speaking in tongues. And it talks about everything must be done decently and in order. And if someone shares something, then there must be an interpreter. He had it completely out of context, which made him a con. Can I get an amen to that? So a point I'm making is that, guys, God is a God of order. And so... The Bible says to study to show yourself approved a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If somebody gets up here that hasn't studied, then if, if he won't bother studying, we shouldn't bother listening. Can I get an amen to that? And so there needs to be somebody who's called and gifted to do that. And you don't want me leading worship? You will run out of here like it's on fire, okay? So because that's not my gift, right? And so he's saying, look, there needs to be authority. There needs to be accountability. We all are uniquely gifted and God wants to use every one of us. Our ultimate accountability is to the Lord, but we also need people in our life that hold us accountable. With calling comes accountability. Then it says in verse 21 down, the sons of Ladan and the descendants of the Gershonites and the Ladan, heads of, the, of their fathers, houses of Ladan, the Gershonite. And then it goes on through the genealogy and talks about Gershom. And, and then it talks about him being the son of Moses, who's an overseer of the treasury. Down there where it talks about Gershom, the son of Moses was the overseer of the treasury. So we want people, what do you need for somebody who's going to oversee finances? What do you need? You need integrity. Amen. You need honesty. You need wisdom. And you need accountability. Amen. And the same should be true for whatever we're doing for the Lord that we recognize one day we will answer to him. The men in charge of the regular treasuries, were, they were the ones who counted the offering every week in a sense, and they were the ones that made sure that the, God's resources were used in a wise way. Now, let me say this too. I know at some point in my life, I've given to a church or I've given to a ministry and they misused the funds. This more than likely has happened. But here's the good news. I believe that God will bless me for, doing, for giving, and I believe the person that used it wrong will be the one that God deals with. Amen? 
Now, you need to be diligent and make sure. And by the way, whether you give here or not, you can look at our books anytime you want. It's all transparent. We'll show you where every dime goes, what we're doing in this church. Amen? We're accountable. It's all God's money. We want to be good stewards of it. Move forward to verse 26. Point number Continue with accountability. And it says there, verse 26, Then Shalmoth had his brethren were over the treasures of the dedicated things, which King David and the heads of the father's houses, the captains over thousands and hundreds, the captains over uh, the army had dedicated. Some of the spoils won in battle. They get dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. Do you guys remember what happened to King Saul? What happened to King Saul? What happened to him? He was, he was stripped as being king because what did he do? God told him to wipe out the Amalekites, to destroy all the spoils, and what did he do? He brought back the king of the, of the Amalekites. First of all, he's supposed to wipe them all out. And when you read that in the Bible, people get panicked, but let me just clue you in. For 300 years, the Amalekites had been warned. They were a murderous, vile, idolatrous people who when the children of Israel were marching through the wilderness, they would come up behind him and pick off the elderly and to sickly and kill them and take their stuff. And God said, I've seen what you've done. He gave them 300 years to repent and they didn't. So God sent King Saul out to literally wipe them out. And what did he do instead? He brought back all the stuff that was good. He brought back the, all their animals and, and he brought back the king and like went through town like, look, look what a bad dude I am. I brought their king back, had him chained up. And he walks through town and then Samuel walks up and sees him. You got to love it. And if you don't think God has a sense of humor, when Samuel walks up and he sees King Saul, King Saul says, I'm paraphrasing, I did everything God told me to do. I was faithful. I did all he told me to do. And then you hear, bah. <laughs> says, what is the, and then Samuel said, what is the lowing of sheep I hear in my ears? Oh, uh, it was the uh, people stole it so they can make sacrifices to the Lord your God. I cheated on my taxes so I could tithe more. I mean, it's kind of what he said, right? And when he says, the Lord, your God, not the Lord, my God. And he got caught. And then Samuel, a Malachite, the Malachite king, his name was Agag. That's a rough name, amen? You want a biblical name? Say that for your next kid, Agag. So Agag is standing there and Samuel comes out and he sees him. And when Agag sees Samuel, who was a man in his late 80s by then, he thinks, oh, good, I'm, I'm okay. And what does Samuel do? He, he chops him up into pieces. It's in the Bible. Now keep in mind that the Malachites were a type of the flesh. Agag was like that one thing in your life that you're holding on to, that one, that one struggle, that one addiction, that one pet sin you won't let go of. And what, is it, what does he destroy that with? A sword, which is the word of God. How do we have victory over those trials of life that we continue to deal with? It's through the word of God. Amen? And praise God for it. And so we see here that each of these families, called by God, uniquely gifted. Now this group is watching over the treasuries. We have the guys watching over the gates. They're the security guards. These are the guys that are taking care of the finances. Again, he's putting everything in order. David knows I'm going to die any time now. I want it all in place so when I go to heaven, it continues to function the way that it should. And again, we've already seen David taking spoils throughout the Bible, and now he's letting them know going forward when they have spoils that they're to be dedicated to the Lord. And it says in verse 28, and all that Samuel, the seer, Saul, the son of Kish, there's King Saul, Abner, the son of Ner, Joab, the son of Zariah, have dedicated, every dedicated thing was under the hand of Shalometh, 
and his brethren. So even though somebody else won the battle, it was put in these guys' hands to be good stewards of what had been brought in, that it would be used for the kingdom of God. Saul, Abner is Saul's cousin, and his father was Saul's father, and Saul's father were brothers. And again, Abner was the head of Saul's armor, army, and later after Saul was killed in battle, Abner took the lead in making Saul's remaining son the new king instead of Solomon. That's going to happen after this. So this guy's in a position of authority, and what's he going to do? As soon as David dies, he's going to go get one of his relatives and try to put him into place instead of Solomon, who's supposed to be king. And so it happens, right? Even someone who's supposed to be called by God. And that's why we always check people's behavior against the word of God, not against anything else. Amen? And so we, it also talks about, again, uh, Joab being one of, his, one of his chiefs. We'll see that in a moment. And Joab's an enigma to me because he was always sticking up for David. But then you'll, if you'll remember when David's son tried to kill David. David wanted to be restored to him, Absalom. And what did he do? He went out and killed Absalom. And so we've got all these different men that, again, have been used mildly by God. But we also see that every one of them can be imperfect and be outside of God's will. Point, the next point there, verse 29 to 32. We need godly men and women in positions of authority. Look what happens. Of the Azarites, Chenaniah, his sons, performed duties as officials and judges over Israel outside Jerusalem. So they raise up a group among these gatekeepers and these guys with the treasury, and they made them the judges, the police officers, if you will, for cities outside of the gate. So they took godly men and put them in positions of authority. And that's, as I said in the beginning, boy, do we need that right about now. Amen? Some of the laws. You can rape somebody and get out without any bail. Where does that make any sense? Defunding the police. What we're doing is we're siding with the criminals and not the victims. Amen? Now, again, here's the good news. God's on the throne. I read the end of the book. God wins. Amen? But that being said, at the same time, notice that they're placing people in positions of authority even far outside the city gates. They wanted to make sure that God was being honored everywhere in Israel, even in the furthest parts of the land, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south. They wanted godly people in authority that were bringing righteous judgment. In those days, they would come to the city gate, even the little cities. Uh, my last trip to Israel, they have a gate from the time of Abraham that Abraham walked through. How gnarly is that, right? And they called Abraham's gate, and they would sit in the gate. And if you had a dispute with your neighbor, you'd go up to the gate, and the, and the judge would judge between the two of you, and he would make the decision. And that man was always a godly man. And when you have godly men and godly women in positions of authority, then you get godly actions. Amen? That's what we need more of. And again, I'm not the most political guy on the planet, but we should vote and vote pro-biblical. Amen? The man was not only of the top government officials, but also a deeply devoted man of God who helped carry the ark. That's Chenaya there. He, he was, verse 29, he helped carry the ark. And he, uh, so he was one used by the Lord. He was one of the chiefs of the Levites. And he was also a worship leader. So he was a worship leader. He was one of the chiefs of the Levites. And he was a man that carried the ark. And now we can see why he's put in position of authority to raise up others to bring judgment upon the world around them. Down there, verse 31, among the Hebronites, 
Jeretha was head over the Hebronites according to the genealogy of the fathers in the 40th year of the reign of David. Now, David's doing all this. He's raising these people up. They're casting lots. He's putting in position. And notice it says in the 40th year of David's reign. Guess which year David died in his reign? The 40th year. So this is the year he's going to die. And as he's going to die, this seems very tedious. But all these things he's doing, again, he knows he's leaving. He knows he's going to heaven, and he wants everything to continue on until after he gets there. One of the most blessed uh, divine appointments I had, most of you guys know my dad was a pastor for 60 years. He went to heaven in 2017, and I was driving away. He was living in Hawaii, and I was flying over there like every month because it was getting toward the end of his life, and my mom was there too, and so, and my brother lived there, so I would fly over, and I remember I was pulling out of the parking lot. I just spent a day and a half with my dad, and I felt prompted to go back in and talk to my dad. My dad had gone blind. Uh, he'd had a stroke. And my dad, who's just, you know, just a man amongst men, you know, growing up, and you see the frailty that's come over him, but he was still the most godly man I've ever met. And I sat there, and I got on a knee, and my wife took a video of it and a picture of it, and I just looked at my dad's, you know, spoke to my dad and just told him how much I loved him, how much I appreciated him, how thankful I was to be his son, and just shared my heart. And then my dad shared some things with me, and it was the last time I ever talked to my dad. And this is kind of what David's doing. You know, I'm, I'm going to die, and I want to get everything in order. You know, my, son, my dad would always say, son, finish strong. Finish strong. Every time we talk on the phone, even after he went blind, what are you teaching this week, son? Well, this is a chapter I'm in. And he would quote it off the top of his head, and he'd say, man, there's a great, verse 17, and there's a great application right there. And, we'd be, and I just loved it. And, you know, getting that, getting that instruction from my dad. And now I get that, we all get that instruction from our Heavenly Father right here. Amen. And so he gives us that instruction, and that's what David's doing. He's in the 40th year of his life. His time's about to come to an end, and he wants, he wants everything to continue on. And don't we, again, I said it before, don't we want our kids to love Jesus more than we do? Amen? Yes. Don't we want our kids on fire for God, walking with the Lord? So this man of great responsibility is important in the worship of the Lord. And you got to love a guy who serves. That was Chaniah, a guy who serves, again, in the, uh, on the worship team. And he's also one of the local you know, judges. And we need more of that. And so it says down there in verse 32, and his brethren were 32,700 able men. So there were uh, 2,700 able men. So there were all these other people that were involved in these, in, uh, of being judges, who they would go out and they'd bring righteous judgment around the land, and they would make sure that when people had a dispute, they would take them back to what God's word said, and they would make a righteous judgment. Can you imagine if we had 2,700 godly judges in California? This whole place would change overnight, amen? And you know what? We're here. God has us here for a reason. So, that's chapter 26. Chapter 27 now, he's going to move from the gatekeepers and the treasurers and the judges to the military. Now, again, we want godly people protecting our country. Amen? They wanted godly people leading. Now, we're going to see who the leaders are, and you're going to recognize these guys if you were here. They're David's mighty men. You guys remember those guys? Do you remember when he found them? What were they like when he found them? They were downtrodden. They were murmurers, complainers, 
criminals. Their lives were a complete and total train wreck. David's running for his life from King Saul. It would have been really easy to say, I have no time to disciple anybody right now. I'm running for my life. And what does David do? He brings these guys along with them. They watch David and they become these mighty men of God. And these are going to be the guys that he puts in charge of his military. These are the guys that were with him when he fought the enemies and won great battles. We're going to see some descriptions of each of these guys individually, what amazing men that they are. So he's going to take men that this is what they're called to do. This is what they're gifted to do. Let's put them in the right place. By the way, if you step out in faith and you think maybe you're called to that and it doesn't work out well, that's okay. Maybe God's called you to do something else. Amen? Too often we sit back and do nothing because we're afraid we might fail. Well, these guys are definitely called. Look at it says there in the beginning in verse 1. We'll go through this fairly quickly. It says there, well, so verse 1 down to verse 15, he's going to talk about, again, the fact that we need mighty men and women of God. May we be mighty men and women of God. Uh, faithful men and women of action, examples to others. It says, the children of Israel, according to their number, the heads of the father's houses, the captains of thousands and hundreds and their officers served as the king in every matter of the military divisions. These divisions came in and went out month by month. So same thing that was happening with the priests. They would serve for two weeks or a month, and then they would have the 11, next 11 months home. But they had leaders that were there all the time, and those were David's mighty men. So these divisions were set up. There's going to be 24,000 of these guys who are faithfully serving. And it talks about over the first division was Joshabem, the son of Zabiel. And in his division were 24,000. So he has 24,000 guys just in his one division. But he too was one of David's mighty men. Matter of fact, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he was the number one of the three uh, known main warriors that fought alongside David. He was the premier guy. And it tells us that he killed 300 men at one time all by himself. Now, I want him as my bodyguard, not Pee Wee Herman. Can I get an amen to that? The guy that wipes out 300, he's a guy who's gifted by God and called by God to keep Israel safe. They're surrounded by their enemies. At this time, though, they've been victorious. If you go down to, to Dodai, the Ahothite, in verse 4, he was the guy that defended the barley field when everyone else left. You guys remember that? Remember, he, they, he says he, he stood there when everybody else left. He, he guarded his bean patch, right? With his sword in his hand. Everybody bailed. It's a bean patch. I'm not staying. If this is God's bean patch. I'm not leaving. And he stood there until his hand was stuck to the sword and he fought off the enemy and guarded the bean patch. Our bean patch is Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park. Amen. This is where God wants us to hold on to the sword. The sword is what? Word of God. Word of God. Amen? It says in First Chronicles, and after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I like the name Eleazar when I was naming my kids, and I found out it was the son of Dodo, and I said, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> so he was one of the mighty men. When you get to verse 5, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada. So let's talk about these guys that are running his military. He was famous for slaying two lion-like men of Moab. He killed a lion in the pit on a snowy day. I love how they talk about a snowy day. It makes it even worse fighting a lion. A lion's in a pit. He jumps down in there and kills the lion. That's the guy you want leading your army. He killed an Egyptian that was seven and a half feet tall. And again, he also would end up being the head of Solomon's army 
after David dies. In verse 7, it says, Ashahel, the brother of Joab, again, being Joab's brother, he was one of David's nephews, the son of his sister Zariah. Then it says in verse 15, Heldai, the Nethophite of Othniel. Now, I love Othniel in the Bible. Man, I love the Old Testament. It rocks. If you guys remember this story, that they were to enter into the land of promise. Remember, they sent the 12 spies in, and 10 of them came back and go, oh, they'll crush us. We can't do it. We're all going to die. They're, they're playing Eeyore. Oh, no, we're all going to die. You know, right? You know, that, this Gulliver's Travels. Oh, never going to work. And Caleb, Caleb and Joshua come back and go, we'll smoke those dudes. Let's go, right? And they listened to the 10, so they marched in the wilderness for 40 years, and everybody dropped dead over the age of 20 except for them. So Caleb's going back now. The first time he went, he was 45. Now he's 85, if you're 85 and you're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years with 3 million whiners, that's pretty rough, right? And what does he say? I still want the land you promised me, the land of the giants. I want it. And Caleb goes in and wipes out a bunch of giants at 85 years old. And then he says, if anybody wants to come alongside and be my, uh, you know, to marry my daughter, then you have to go out and wipe out this major enemy of ours. And the guy that goes out and does it, he comes back, his name's Othniel. You notice Othniel's being named here. And Othniel would become the first judge over all of Israel. So here's what he was doing. He, was, he, made his, he gave his son-in-law a difficult task because he wanted to groom his son-in-law into being a mighty, he said, if he's not a mighty man of God, I hope he gets killed. I'm a dad. I'm a dad. I was the most overprotective dad on the planet. I used to go do chapel. This is it's hard to imagine now, but when I was younger, I was a bodybuilder. I was a big guy before I spent a year in the hospital. And, and uh, I would have, cha at chapel, I'd have my daughter stand up in the front row. That's my baby girl right there. And I keep lifting weights to crush any of you guys that get anywhere near her in Jesus' name. Amen? But I wanted a son-in-law that loved Jesus. And a guy who couldn't get through me wasn't worthy of my daughter. And Caleb said, if you can go out and conquer this enemy, then you can have my daughter. Othniel was the guy, and Othniel became a judge over all of Israel. And Othniel is mentioned right here amongst these mighty men who are being used by the Lord. And again, this is speaking well before, I mean, again, talking about the kind of man that he had been. And praise God for that, for guys like Othniel. So guys like these, what do they have? They're mighty men. Each one of them, again, uh, they're, they're, these are real human beings. They're not action figures, amen? They're real men. They were faithful men, not only mighty men, but faithful men. It didn't require money or connections or education or intelligence, just faithfulness and, and, and a heart to serve God and a fearlessness that comes from walking in the spirit. And these guys stayed with David through thick and thin. When others left, these guys stayed. They were men of action. They had proven themselves. They were heroes. Again, examples to other men. They were men who led others into battle. And these are the men that David says, these are the guys that are going to run our army. Unlike somebody who leaves billions of dollars worth of weapons for terrorists. Just a little different than the guys we got in the Bible here. <laughs> it's the most political I've been in my life. I don't know what's happening. Then we see in verse 16 to 22 down there, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Let's take a look at these guys as we're getting close to the end here. It says, furthermore, over the tribes of Israel, the officer of the Reubenites, Eleazar, the son of Zikri, over the Simeonites. And so he's going to go down this list and they're going to determine who is in a position of leadership. And each one of these are people, if we took the time to read them, you got Judah in here and Zebulun, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so to remember though that 
that there were two and a half tribes that camped outside of the land of promise. You guys remember that? Two and a half of the tribes said, we'll go in and help you win the battle, but we're going to stay out here where the grass is already green, and we don't want to fight giants forever. And guess what? They're not listed in this list. Those tribes aren't here. Because again, they settled for less than God's highest. They did help out with the battle, but they settled for less than God's highest. They were also the first ones defeated, by the way. And so each of these uh, men of God, it says of Judah, Elihu, one of the brethren of David. It says in First Chronicles that Jesse begot his first born Eliab. So Eliab, this is David's big brother. And so David's got this army he's mounting up and his big brother is actually going to be one of the ones that's going to serve in the army. But notice he's not the king. Even though he was the oldest, even though he would have been the one with the birthright, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Amen? God chose his ruddy... By the way, he was also one of the ones that made fun of David when David came out to the battle with the Philistines. You guys remember that? They come out, they're fighting Goliath. Well, they're not fighting Goliath, they're hiding from Goliath. And every time he comes down, he's like, defy the armies, right? And, you know, 11 foot 750, how deep is that voice, right? Imagine what it felt like as he came down the hill. When you go to Israel with us, you'll see it, right? And everybody else just shook in their boots. And Saul had already been told that the kingdom was ripped from him, and he was their champion. And David shows up to bring cheese to his brothers. And what does he say? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? See, God knew the man that he was on the inside, and David ran toward the giant, took him down. The dust clears. He's holding up his head. All the Israelites got bold, and they chased the Philistines all the way back home, killing most of them along the way. Because it took one godly man to stand up when nobody else would. Amen? And we need godly men and women to do the same to stand up even when nobody else will. Again, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And it talks about the half-tribe of Manasseh, it talks about the tribe of Dan, but David did not take the number of those 22 years old and under. So what are you, 20 years old and under? So he, he didn't take the young men yet, he set them aside, let them be home with their family, and he took the older, more established men, and maybe this is where we got the draft, amen? We picked the number, we're not taking young children like some countries do. So Eliab got passed over in favor of King David, but now he's going to be used, and David is his king. Let's finish up, verse 23 and 24, it says there, uh, faithfulness, not numbers, is what matters. Look what happens here in verse 23 and verse 24. It says, but David did not take the number of 20 years and, old and under because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel like the stars of the heavens. Joab, the son of Zariah, began a census, but he did not finish. For the wrath came upon Israel because of this census, nor was their number recorded in the account of the chronicles of King David. See, God's raising people up and he's saying, look, you don't have to count how many people you have to figure out if you're going to be victorious or not. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? God is the one who multiplies. God is the one who grows it. We just need to be faithful and trust God whether we're outnumbered or not. Ask Gideon about that. Amen? And he just kept taking their number away so, until they were so overwhelmed that, that when, when they won, they knew God had to have done it. To God alone be all the glory. Finally, giving ministry away. From verse 25 on, we see the names of Uzziah and Adalel and Caleb, and it was over those who did work. And he gives ministry away. And what he does is he takes and gives to each one of these men 
a position where they were to oversee and raise up other men to serve underneath them. And uh, you've heard me say the success of a ministry is not how it functions when you're there, but how it functions when you're not. So if you're giving ministry away, if you get hit by a bus, the ministry should continue. Amen? shouldn't be built on a man, it's built on the Lord. And whatever ministry you're involved in, we want to give that ministry away. And we see through the census, it talks about each of these men and each of the places where they serve and the people that were coming up behind them that they were giving ministry to. And that's, that's a great example for all of us to follow that we should be giving ministry away, that we should be raising others up. So he raised up a delegation. We saw that. Then there's the stewardship over the king's property. He talks about that in verse uh, 32. Verse 33, Ahithophel was uh, actually a very sharp, very smart person. His advice was so good that it said the counsel of Ahithophel, which was counseled in those days as if men had inquired of the oracle of God. So Ahithophel is listed there in verse 33, was the king's counselor. You know what you need? We all need Godly counselors, amen? We need godly people that when we're going through something difficult, that we can pick up the phone, somebody who loves the Lord, who can speak into our lives the truth of God's word. And notice David's raising up another man so that when David leaves, his Solomon's gonna have godly men he can seek counsel from. And this is what we wanna do as well. And it says, after I hit the fellow Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, then Abathar, and the general of the king's army was Joab. Now, we'll finish with Joab. Now, the Bible does say there's wisdom in the counsel of many. And the Bible also says to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. So we don't need counsel from the world. We want counsel from the Lord. Amen. And we want counsel from people that know the Lord. And so he finally speaks of Joab. And Joab, like I said, he was the general in the king's army. And he was this complex guy because he was fiercely loyal to David, yet not strongly obedient. He disobeyed David when he thought it was for David's best interest. And this is what we don't want to do. We don't tell God anything. Can I get an amen to that? When God commands us to do something, we are never, we're, when you disagree with God, you're always wrong. Amen. And so Joab was in a position where David would tell him to do something. He goes, you know what? I think I know what's best for David. I'm just going to do the opposite. And this is what we are not to do as God's children. Amen? Well, if God knew my circumstances, he would be okay with it. No, he won't because the word of God is true. Amen? And we want to stand by the word of God. So I know we went through a lot of genealogies there. We just tried to glean a few things from it. So again, told you what I was going to tell you. I told you, and I'll tell you what I told you. The men and women God uses, first of all, God chooses to use people. He chooses to use people like us. Don't get too puffed up because it says he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Amen? So that makes us foolish things. Those that he has called and gifted are the people God uses. Again, able men and women strong for the work. Again, if you're called to do, uh, if you're called to take care of the finances, then study and get better at that. If you're called to be on the worship team, then continue to work on becoming more proficient at that. If you're called to teach, make sure you study and learn how you know, to exposit the word of God. Whatever God calls you to do, let's get better at it and let's do it with excellence, amen? And we can do it without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And then all tasks, whether spiritual or practical, have value in God's eyes. Anything, if you're mopping the floor for Jesus, that's valuable in God's eyes and mop the floor for Jesus, amen? 
Do it for him. Number four, God is, God is the one who calls us, not men. We don't need to try to get the attention of men so that men will praise us or men will call us. God is the one who calls us, and when God calls us, God will sustain us. With calling comes accountability. Again, the Bible says, let not many of you be teachers because you're going to be held to a high level of accountability. But whatever God has called you to do, there needs to be accountability and authority that uh, is over you. We need godly men and women in positions of authority, and praise God for those that, that are. May we be mighty men and women of God, faithful men and women of action and examples to others. So as we're living our life, may we live out loud in front of the world around us. May our coworkers see Jesus in us. May our kids see Jesus in us. Uh, may our neighbors see Jesus in us. May we be salt and light. May we represent him well. You know the number one pre- reason people won't go to church? It's not Christ, it's Christians. Amen? They see Christians, they see hypocrisy. Whenever they tell me that, I say, we all got room for one more. Come on down. But, um, number six there, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Again, reputation is who we are when, when everyone's watching, but God really looks for character. We're going to be doing an ordination here in a week and a half, and I always go through the 15 qualifications for a pastor. 14 speaks of character, only one speaks of gifting. And the same should be true for every believer. We should be men and women of godly character. Amen? Faithfulness, not numbers, is what matters. Let's be faithful to what God's called us to do. He will bring the increase, and we need to learn to give ministry away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. I know these chapters are a little tedious, not exactly reading through a story, but going through genealogies. But Lord, there's so much in your word, and it's in there for a reason. We thank you for all the examples we've seen in these chapters. As David's preparing that next generation for when he leaves and goes to heaven. Lord, I pray we would do the same, that we would pour into our children and our grandchildren those, those arrows that are going to be shot into the next generation should you tarry. May we leave this place better than the way we found it. May we draw people unto you because, Lord, you're the only answer. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here, those watching on live stream. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said.